Well, good morning, faith family. If you have a Bible, go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is going to be our text this morning. We're starting a brand new series. I'm excited about this series. I'm excited about every series we do here. A series that we're going to do kind of the rest of the summer, and we're calling it Mixtape. Now, be honest, how many of you remember the mixtape? Show of hands. Yeah, how many of you still have your mixtapes? Weren't they awesome? Some of you are like, I was actually listening to mine on the way here this morning. <laughs> what was the mixtape all about? Do you remember it was an opportunity for us to take a lot of different songs and put them all on one tape, and therefore we could have songs that would motivate us and inspire us. We could have songs that would make us cry. We'd, make a, we'd have songs that would make us feel in love and all those kinds of things. And it was, a, it was just kind of this compilation of all different emotions of life. That was the mixtape. And I thought as we launched this brand new series that uh, there might be just a few people curious as to what was on my mixtape. Anybody? Like four of you? Anybody want to know what was on Pastor Wes's mixtape? All right. Okay, here we go. You ask for it, your view of me is about to change, okay? And so I'm going to let you in on what was on my mixtape when I was growing up. The first song, and I think this song was on a lot of people's mixtape, especially guys. I mean, like, man, if you played sports, you had to have this on your tape. In fact, I listened to it every time before a basketball game. Here it is. Another song, you need to understand your pastor could break down and dance. And, you know, there would be times at my high school dance that there'd be the circle gathered around. Do you remember the circle? And they'd be like, go west, go west, go west. And I'm right there in the middle dancing to this song. Go west. You mean to do the worm right now? You're crazy. Ain't no way I'm doing the worm. I break something now. Are you kidding me? Oh, now here's the song that was on my mixtape that anytime I was with a lady, anytime, you know, I kind of wanted to woo the girls, I would always play this song.
I nailed that. I totally nailed that. Another song that was on my mixtape, I mean, you could not be a boy from the South without somewhere on your mixtape being some country music. You know you love that. I know. Oh, now listen, so this is for those of you that your youth ministry experience was in the 90s. This song was on my mixtape because it pretty much summarized my entire youth ministry experience. One more, one more. What well, was on Pastor Wes's mixtape? This was my favorite. So I'm, I'm about to put all the cards on the table. On every mixtape I ever had, always had to be this song because it was my favorite growing up. Here it is. All right, there's my mixtape. Yeah. Some of you are like, do I still want to be a member of this church? <laughs> to give some consideration to that. Now, why are we doing all this in terms of explaining a mixtape? You're going to remember this forever, okay? That's the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a mixtape. It's a collection of songs that are brought together for the people of God to sing in different seasons of life. There are times in your life when you need a song to sing when everything is going well, and there's times in your life you need a song to sing when everything's going wrong. The book of Psalms gives you these songs that you can sing and so many of the different things that you face in life. And so for the next few weeks throughout the rest of the summer, we're going to take the book of Psalms and we're going to give us songs to sing as the people of God based on the different things we face in our life. And we're going to start this morning with Psalm 1. So if we can put all that other stuff behind us now, let's look here at Psalm 1 at this very first song that the people of God are to sing. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Psalm chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's Word. Let's pray. 
God, I ask that everyone here this morning can sing this song when we are finished. And in order for that to happen, Holy Spirit, you must come and do your work in us. Teach us what this song is all about and help us sing it into the very depths of who we are. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You are what you eat. You are what you eat. Have you ever thought about that phrase and what it means? Clearly, it doesn't mean to take that literally, that it, you, know, you eat a donut, you're going to turn into a walking pastry. You go out this afternoon and eat at Chick-fil-A, that you'll be a chicken by tomorrow. But we don't take it literally. What does it mean that you are what you eat? We understand that what that phrase means is that there is a direct relationship between the physical food that you eat and your physical health. If you eat unhealthy, you're going to be unhealthy. You are what you eat. That's not just true when it comes to physical things and physical health. The exact same thing is true when it comes to our spiritual health or the desires and the cravings of our soul. You are what you eat. If you think on profanity, if you think on sexuality, if you think on these things, there will be a translation some way, somehow into your life. You are what you eat. Take for, exen- take for example the former king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Elvis was known by so many that were close to him, family and friends, as being someone who hungered for and craved and longed for material things. In his first two years, he earned over $100 million. Here's what he spent it on. Three jets, two Cadillacs, a Rolls Royce, a Lincoln Continental, Buick and Chrysler station wagons, a Jeep, a dune buggy, a converted bus, three motorcycles, his prized possession was a 1960 Cadillac limousine. Here's what it had in it. A pearl white top, metal trim of 18 karat gold, two gold flake telephones, a gold electric razor, gold hair clippers, a gold shoe buffer, gold plated TV, a record player, and a refrigerator. He longed, he craved things. And the people closest to Elvis said it was his cravings, his appetites that ultimately did him in. You are what you eat. And that, dear friends, is exactly the idea behind this first psalm. It is a psalm that forces us to ask the question, what do you delight in? What do you long for? What's the hunger of your soul? What do you thirst for? What is the delight of your heart? And the psalmist teaches this by laying before us. It's a very simple psalm to outline. He lays before us the description 
of two different kinds of people. The first is the description of the blessed one. Blessed, the psalm starts, is the man. What do we mean by blessed? What do we mean by someone who is blessed? Uh, This is a biblical word we throw out a lot. It's the idea of this. Some will say it means happy, and it does mean happy, but it means more than that. It's this sense of because of God's grace and God's favor on our life, we have reached a point of ultimate satisfaction an ultimate and eternal satisfaction that comes in God. And isn't satisfaction what we all want? Don't don't we all want to be happy? What is the, the mantra of our culture? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We want a happy marriage. We want to work in a place where there's happy environments and happy relationships. We say of our kids... I just want them to be happy. Everybody wants this. So who is this blessed one? This one that is satisfied and truly, eternally, and ultimately happy. He describes him. First, as one who avoids worldly influence. Notice what the psalm says. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Friends, do you understand that every single day of your life, you're in somebody's counseling chair? It may be the book that you're reading. It may be the TV series that you're following. It may be the teacher of your class. It may be the preacher that you listen to on the weekend. But you are in a counselor's chair every day, bombarded by different messages all the time about how you are supposed to live life. In fact, one commentator wrote it this way. I think this is helpful. He writes, quote, that your day is like sitting in a gymnasium five minutes before the assembly starts and everybody's talking at the same time. It's coming from the news media. It's coming from the advice from a friend that you're being bombarded all the time with counsel Which means this, right here, friends, you need to be very careful who you allow to speak into your life. Because, unlike what our culture would say, all perspectives are not equal. This psalm says there is a counsel that is from the wicked, a counsel that is ungodly. And why should you be very cautious who you listen to? Next phrase. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Now, when we think about that in English, we think about stand in the way of somebody in a little different context. If I said, somebody's standing in my way, you'd, say, you'd think that I need to get somewhere and somebody's blocking me from getting there. And you would say, well, just go around them. But that's not the idea in the Hebrew. The idea in the Hebrew to stand in somebody's way is to live the way they live, to follow their path. You're standing in their path. You're doing what they do. You're following in their footsteps right here. Why is it so important that you be careful who you're influenced by? Because if you listen to the ungodly long enough, you'll become like them soon enough. The way you think shapes how you live. 
Which is why the Bible is constantly, constantly calling us as to think about what is righteous. Philippians 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what? Think about these things. Romans 12 verse 2, you know it. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your, say it, mind. Colossians 3 verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Why it is important not to listen to the counsel of the ungodly is because if you listen to them long enough, you'll start walking in their way. Standing in their path. And so, I'm going to play a little game with you this morning. I want you to participate. I'm going to read half of a sentence. I want you to finish it out loud. All of you together. If you know it, I want you to say it out loud. So, we'll start with this. Melts in your mouth. You say, pretty good. Pretty good. How about this one? Like a good neighbor, you say, Ah, everybody knows that one, huh? Don't like M&Ms, but you like insurance? You weird. I say, I can't get no. You say, I say, help, I've fallen. And you say, I can't believe some of you even know that. I say, what's in your? You say, I say, plop, plop, fizz, fizz. You say, I say to all who receive him, you say, did Charlie Brown's teacher just walk in? I say, don't be anxious for anything. You say, what? The heart of your pastor is in no way to make you feel guilty. It isn't. All I simply want to do is make this point. You are bombarded a lot more with messages from the world than you often are the very counsel of God. It's not to make you feel guilty. And I didn't pick like obscure verses in Leviticus, you know, and take the lamb and, you know, I didn't even do that one, (laughs) right? These are... These are pretty well-known verses, and yet how easy it is for the things of the world to roll off our tongue. Why? Because we hear them over and over and over again. It starts with just a little bit of listening to the wrong counsel, and then before long it affects how you live. And then notice where it ends up. Next phrase, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What does that mean? What does it mean to sit in the seat of scoffers? Let me ask you Can you think of anybody in your life or in your family or maybe a society that represents this? It started out by just listening to a little bit of ungodly counsel. Before long, it started influencing the way I made decisions and what I thought was right or wrong, and it ended up with scoffing that which is godly. 
It started out with just listening to the wrong thing. It began to affect my behavior. And then before long, I looked at godliness and thought, that's ridiculous. That whole purity stuff, that's so old-fashioned. Prayer, you really think that works? You believe in God? Do you realize how intellectually stupid that is? It's a slow fade. You don't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to throw it all away. It's a slow progression influenced over time, and before long, you ridicule the very thing you once believed was true. It's like my family and I, when we were on vacation last month, we spent some time at the ocean. We were out playing and enjoying our time in the water. Have you ever had this experience where you come down, you get in the water, you're having a good time, you're just enjoying one another and playing in the water, and then all of a sudden you look back and your chairs and your towels and everything that you brought down to the beach is way down the shore. And you think, how did I get here? When I walked into the water, I walked in right in front of all my stuff. But somehow, over the span of time, I ended up drifting much further down than I realized. It's a slow fade. So be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Because the Father above is looking down with love. So be careful, little ears, what you hear. Who is this blessed one? Who is this one who has found satisfaction by the favor and grace of God? He is one who avoids the influence of the world, but not only the negative, look at the positive in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That is, he not only avoids worldly influence, he absorbs godly instruction. Faith family, hear this. It is not enough to say no to the counsel of the world. You must say yes to the counsel of God. The gospel is not an invitation to some kind of moral experience where look at what I don't do. The gospel is an invitation into eternal delight. It doesn't say, and his discipline was to meditate on the law, what does it say? His delight, his hunger, his passion. It's what his soul craved. Because what you eat is what you are. The delight of the blessed man is in God, supernaturally and divinely revealed in his word. That's the delight of his heart. Is it the delight of our heart? It is on his mind. It's not just on his mind. It affects his emotions. He cries. He laughs. He rejoices. It's why we don't do boring. 
Because the presence of God and the truth of God is not boring. It's a delight. And he does it over and over and over again. He cannot get enough. It reminded me of a man by the name of Ernest Shackleton. He wrote a book called In the Heart of the Antarctic. And he describes his expeditions, a very famous individual who went on a lot of different expeditions. And he talks about one that he went on to the South Pole. He had three men with him. And during the journey, they lost everything. All their supplies, gone. For 127 days, he and his crew had to walk back to base in the bitter, freezing cold. What do you think he thought about? Can't wait to get back and catch up on my television programs. Can't wait to get back and read that book. Here's what he said. Every waking hour was occupied with the thoughts of eating. One thing mattered in that moment. One thing needed was needed in that moment. It was food. I got to eat. I don't care about anything else. I've got a hunger. I know what starvation really is like, and I can't wait to be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they and they alone shall be satisfied. This blessed man is absorbed in the Word of God. And here's the last description of the blessed man. Verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In other words, he not only avoids the influence of the world, he not only absorbs godly instruction, but he achieves his intended purpose. What does this word prosperity mean or prosper? In all that he does, he prospers. Does that mean financial? Is this a prosperity God? Is, is this a avoid the influence of the world, love the word of God, and um, God will make you rich? You'll prosper. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's everything you try to do will go just how you want it to. Then what does it mean to prosper? Here's why it doesn't mean those things, because one, you've got to be consistent with the metaphor, and number two, you need to know how that word prosper is used elsewhere in the Scripture. Let me just give you one example from Isaiah 55, verse 11. Isaiah 55, verse 11, hear this. So shall my word, that is God's, be that goes out out from my mouth, it shall not return empty, but it shall prosper. God God says, my word's going to go out. It won't return empty. It'll prosper. And here's how other translations correctly translate it. It will go out and it will accomplish that which I purpose. In other words, prospering means doing what you were intended to do. 
And doesn't that make sense in the metaphor right here? What's the purpose of trees? To grow money? The purpose of a tree is to bear fruit. Doesn't that make sense? Like a tree planted by streams of water, it yields its fruit. That is, it does what it's supposed to do. And in all that he does, he prospers. Let me be very, very, very simple right here. Who is this blessed one? Who is this one who has ultimate satisfaction? It is the one who avoids the influence of the world, absorbs the instruction of God, and is obedient in all that he does. There's only one other person mentioned here in Psalm 1. We'll look at it briefly, verse 4. That's the description of the blessed one. Here's the description of the wicked one. The wicked are not so. The Hebrew there is not so the wicked. In other words, everything that was true of the blessed one, the righteous one, is not true of this wicked one. What does that mean? We'll work backwards. He is not obedient in all that he does because his delight is not the Word of God, and he is far too easily influenced by ungodly counsel, and as a result, he will never know ultimate true satisfaction. That's the wicked It's what that phrase is intended to do. You've got all this momentum going, 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 and then the psalmist says, but not so the wicked. It's the exact opposite of what's just been said of the blessed one. And what is true of this one? It's like a chaff. Any farmers? Any of you been around wheat? where you've seen people separate the wheat from the chaff, I thought most of the people that will be here uh, this weekend won't know that, so I thought I'll illustrate it this way. Any of you eating hard shell peanuts? What do you do with the shell? Don't say eat it. That's disgusting. (laughs) What you do is you open it, you get out what you're after, which is the peanut, And then you take the shell and you throw it away. It's exactly what Psalm 1 is saying. The wicked man's life will be... (sighs) Why is that? Because unlike the tree, he's dead. Because unlike the tree, he has no roots. And what's going to happen, verse 5 and 6, is a day is going to come and that wicked man is going to stand in the day of judgment and he will be unable to do so. And then the psalm ends. What do we do with this psalm? Let me tell you what every sermon I've ever heard on Psalm 1, how it concludes. So, go read your Bible more. Amen. Is that, is that not true? Is this not a psalm that most people run to to say, see, you ought to be in the Bible more? That's true. Go read your Bible. Some will say, you need to go home and break up with him or break up with her. They're a bad influence in your life and you don't need ungodly counsel in your life. And, and so that's the ultimate walk away here. Well, if that's true. That may be a good thing for you. You do need to be careful as to the influence in your life, but that's not the point. 
The point is, which one are you? Are you the righteous one or are you the wicked one? And you would say, whoa, 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 whoa. I read my Bible. I own a Bible. I'm at church. I go to a Bible study. Um, I have John 3.16 memorized. I'm not as worldly as my neighbor. So, pastor, here's my answer to your question. I'm kind of in the middle. The problem is there is no middle. The psalm won't let you be in the middle because there isn't a middle. You're either one or the other. So which one are you? You say, whoa, 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 there's no reason to be such a jerk here, you know? I mean, let's be, let's be gracious. Let's give a little room. No, 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 no. The Bible often does not give you any room. The book of Proverbs says you're either following the way of wisdom or the way of foolishness. Which is it? John, the apostle John says you're either a child of the light or a child of the dark. Which is it? Jesus says your house is either built on the rock or the sand. Which is it? There's no concrete. Jesus says you're either on the narrow way or the wide way. Which is it? Your tree either produces good fruit or bad fruit. Which, which is it? Do you see? You're either one or the other. And what you would say is, Pastor, if you're going to push it that hard, if you're going to be that unwilling to bend and that unwilling to be flexible, then nobody would fit in this psalm. I mean, David, a man after God's own heart, won't even fit here. He committed adultery and murder. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, he won't even fit here. He's called a friend of God, but he won't fit because he's a liar. Moses, the mediator between God and his people, he won't even fit here because he lost his temper and killed a man. Peter, Jesus' closest disciple, he won't even fit because he's a denier of the faith. Paul won't even fit here, even though he's the great apostle, because he killed Christians. You say, and then there's you and I. <laughs> even on my best spiritual day, I'm not going to line up to the blessed man described in verses 1 through 3. Don't you understand, pastor? Nobody fits that description. And I say, oh, but one. Do you know anybody who was never influenced by evil? Do you know of anybody who never walked in the way or stood in the way of sinners? Do you know anybody who absorbed completely the law of God? Do you know of anybody who fulfilled precisely the mission he was given to do? Don't you see, dear friends, verse 1 of chapter 1, blessed is the man, the man of Psalm 1 is the God-man of John 1. He's the only one who fits. Everybody else is in verse 4 and following. Jesus is the one who never committed evil. His food was the word of God. He delighted to do the will of his Father. He fulfilled the law of God, and he prospered, didn't he? Do you know how he prospered? He prospered because he faced the cross. 
And he was victorious over death, walking out of the grave, fulfilling the very thing his father sent him to do. He prospered in all that he did. He's the only righteous one. And you say, I know what some of you are thinking. Here we go. He's always got to bring Jesus into it. I've been going to this church now for several months. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Admit it, Pastor. You're forcing him into the text. I'm not. Here's what Jesus said. Luke 24, verse 44. And then he said to them, listen. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Do you want to know who the song of Psalm 1 is ultimately about? It is about me, Jesus and you say, okay, okay, you've made your point, but what does that do for us? We're still in the category of verse 4 and following, and here's the good news of the gospel. I'm going to leap out of my skin. The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, you will find your ultimate satisfaction. Amen? In Jesus, you will avoid ultimately evil. In Jesus, you will be able to delight in the Father. In Jesus, you will be fully obedient before God. In Jesus, come on, you're going to be able to stand in the day of judgment. In Jesus, you become the righteous one of Psalm 1. He's the way into this path by faith and surrender to Him and love for Him, delighting in Him. He is your song of delight. Or as Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread, the living bread that came down from heaven. If Anyone eats this bread, he lives forever. You see, you really are what you eat. Let's pray. Father, yes, we want to be driven to your word more. Yes, we want to be driven away from ungodly influence. Yes, we want to be obedient. But if we run after those things without Jesus, it will destroy us. And so we start in Him and our love for Him with a relationship with Him, the righteous one. He is where our blessedness is found. And it is in Him that we begin to see Psalm 1 take evidence in our life. So this morning, every heart, may every voice sing a song of delight in Jesus. For we ask it in His name. Amen.